welcome to episode 240 of Crack the Customer Code, where Adam and Jeannie help you put your journey maps in street view. Adam, I think it's time we talk about how much effort it takes to put this podcast out. <laughs> well, Jeannie, I know that working with you is an effortless experience. Wow, so, nice save. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> So you must just be referring to the pure mechanics and operations of (laughs) producing a podcast of such high production value as ours. Yes. Well, we we do put a lot of effort into it, but it's worth it. But when you're a customer and you're asked to put in a lot of effort to the experience of being a customer, I think that ranks as uh, pretty darn irritating. Well, that's the key. I think that's our first takeaway before we even get into Matt Dixon, our guest, and all of his big takeaways, which is the more effort you put in yourself, the less effort your customers that's right. have to go through. And that's pretty important because we, I'm a big believer. You know, we've talked about this mm-hmm. a lot. I'm a big believer in effortless, I'm a big fan of Matt's uh, first book, Effortless Experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of being hassle free. Be easy to do podcasting with, Jeannie. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sure there are times it is not hassle-free. So, <laughs> so thank you for your loyalty as my co-host. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that's full circle, but <laughs> we're going to move on now. Yeah, Matt has a lot to cover, and it's one of my favorite kind of research-filled but fun discussions about customer service reps and the different types and all sorts of fascinating subjects we get into with this. And I have to say, he has quite the resume. So, Adam, why don't you tell us about our guest? Well, let's do some full disclosure. If you want to see Matt's full bio, you're going to need to go to the show notes. We actually (laughs) it's so much. He's done so much that we actually had to cut it down a little for audio. So make sure to check out the full bio in the show notes. But for now, let me just tell you a little bit about Matt. Matt Dixon is executive director of the Financial Services Practice and Customer Contact Leadership Council at CEB, which is now a part of Gartner. In this capacity, he has management responsibility for the membership programs serving front office and back office financial services and their teams, as well as the programs serving customer contact executives across the industry. A seasoned research leader, Matt has overseen dozens of original quantitative and qualitative research studies on topics ranging from customer service strategy to sales effectiveness. In addition to his management responsibilities, Matt is a noted business writer. His first book, The Challenger Sale, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. He's been published multiple times in the Harvard Business Review. He is a frequent contributor on sales and customer service topics on a number of blogs. And his book on customer service, The Effortless Experience, was released by Penguin in 2013. Matt holds a PhD from the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh, as well as a BA in International Studies from Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where he graduated summa cum laude. Matt currently resides in Silver Spring, Maryland with his wife and four children. Matt, so great to have you on the show. How you doing? Hey, Adam. How you doing? Uh, great to be back again. Well, we are thrilled to have you here. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeannie. And I have to say that uh, we talk a lot about 
books with fancy titles and research and things, but <laughs> <laughs> your last article in Harvard Business Review was called Kick-Ass Customer Service, which yeah. might be a, one of the greatest titles there ever was. Well, it was, I, my, I think it was the, um, it produced this effect where I, I think I, when I told my parents we were in Harvard Business Review and they're, oh, that's great. And they're very impressed. And I did, <laughs> asked what the name of the article was. And I told them, and my dad said, are you sure that wasn't the Hartford Business Review? <laughs> it doesn't sound very Harvard-like. And, <laughs> That's, awesome. That's a great response. No offense to the people from Hartford, of course. So. Right, of course, of course. Um, well, and what, what was interesting was this is based on a lot of research, and I'm curious about that research, if you can tell us a little bit about that and kind of where it came from. Yeah, sure. Um, so we uh, will talk a little bit, I think, about uh, sort of the earlier genesis of this work, um, which really had to do with our sort of a study of customer effort in, in delivering a low effort or easy service experience to customers, which is the experience we found that customers actually really want and that they really value. Um, but there were two big trends that we found, two, two things that uh, kind of steered us down this direction of asking the question, you know, what kind of person do we actually want to hire for our customer service organization? What kind of person do we want on our side of the phone, on the company's side of the phone? Uh, the first uh, the first trend was uh, was this that you know as we studied this idea of low effort or easy customer service what we found is that effort um, how much effort a customer feels during interaction is actually more uh, uh, or how much how much effort they perceive during an interaction is actually more, less a function of what they had to do uh, during their service uh, interaction and more a function of how they felt about what they had to do. And that when you get down to it, that really has everything to do with the way that our people handle customer issues. It's a, it comes down to the the kind of people we put on the phone with our customers, the the, the words that come out of their mouths, the, the way that they interact with customers, their, their posture, all this kind of thing. So we knew from our customer effort work that um, that – People were critical and we were hugely important. We actually, um, at the same time, uh, were tracking um, self-service usage um, among customers. And one of the things we found uh, a few years ago is that we really crossed the tipping point. Um, uh, more than 50% of customers today really preferring to self-serve on their issues instead of engage live with a service representative. In fact, the, the data point we start the HBR article uh, with is that 81% of customers today um, are looking to self-serve, our first attempt to self-serve on their issue before they resort uh, to live service. And actually, if you unpack that number, interestingly, most of those customers go to non-company channels first. So they go to Google or YouTube or some you know, discussion board or blog post. They're trying to find the hack, right, the workaround, so that mm -hmm. they can find the person just like them who also dropped their their iPhone in a swimming pool and how do I fix it? <laughs> um, you know, if they get, if they don't find anything that works, then they'll go to Apple's website. And then as a very last resort, they'll pick up the phone and call Apple, but they're trying to avoid like the plague having to actually talk to anybody from the company. So it's of course not to pick on Apple, but they're, they're trying to avoid um, engaging with any live person on the company side. And so what we know is that in this world where um, customers are out there really preferring to self-serve in that they're reaching out to talk to call center reps as a sort of a vehicle or a channel of last resort uh, in their service journey. And we know that most of the effort equation has to do with how they feel, not what they had to actually do. Um, what's really interesting about that is that um, is that we we really, it becomes absolutely critical to really understand the kind of person we put on the phone. Who are the people with today's customers that are really going to deliver that low effort experience 
Um, what again? What what is their posture? What kind of profile? Where do they? Where do these folks come from? What are their competencies? What kind of skills do they have? How do we manage those folks as well? Um, and that's really was the the sort of uh, genesis for this work and, and it forced us to ask this question of like who is um, who is the low effort uh, service rep and um, and what do they do that is different from what uh, what the average service rep does? Hmm. Really interesting. It is, and you know, it's fascinating how all of this ties together. Uh, you know, especially when you're looking at effort and looking at the uh, the book you wrote, which is called the Effortless Experience. Yep. And customer effort score and all that. So one of the things I'm very curious about is what's changed because I, I want to dig into. We're going to definitely dig into sort of these different personality types or different types we should call them. But what's changed around you know customer expectations and really what what do they want from customer service nowadays? Um, so, uh, great question, Adam. The, you know, the, this work goes back to really, uh, 2006, 2007, we started, um, down this path of really trying to understand what the impact is of a service interaction on a customer's loyalty. Um, we wrote about that in a 2010 HBR article called stop trying to delight your customers. And then we packaged a lot of our research, um, into, uh, the book, the effortless experience, uh, that you mentioned before, I'll just give you the kind of the cliff notes version of the, um, of the argument, which is in a, in a global study of, um, customer service reps, what we found is, or sorry, customer customers who had service interactions. What we found is that, um, you know, while the conventional wisdom out there among companies is that you can drive loyalty upward by going above and beyond during a service interaction during that moment of need. Uh, in other words, kind of wowing or delighting or surprising the customer in some way. Um, again, this is the conventional wisdom out there. What we found is that the point of maximum utility is simply delivering on the customer's expectations, not doing anything more than that. In fact, what you find is that um, two things. One, companies really underestimate all of the goodwill that can be generated simply by delivering on the basics and doing it really well, by delivering the kind of plain vanilla service promise um, in delivering on those customers' expectations. And then the other thing is that while companies are always trying to find ways to delight and surprise their customers, and again, it's, it feels good to celebrate those moments in the service organization, in the company, and those become those stories become the stuff of kind of legend uh, within companies. But what we find is that while companies spend a lot of time and energy and resources trying to go above and beyond, um, they actually uh, customers actually don't pay them back with any marginal loyalty. So customer loyalty kind of plateaus after you get to that meets expectations point. Despite all the energy that companies put into trying to wow customers and surprise and delight them. Customers don't pay them back with any incremental loyalty. Um, now, the other thing we found as we really unpacked the data is that the average service interaction is actually not a loyalty building experience. It's actually a loyalty destroying experience. Um, most service interactions are about four times uh, more likely to drive disloyalty than to create loyalty. Now, it seems a bit unfair, right? Because customers are in a bad state when they have to call customer service. You know, the thing they bought from us is not working the way they thought it would, and they are calling us for help. They're in a moment of need. But what the data say very clearly is that it's not that we um, we don't get customers back to neutral. It's that we actually actively make it worse um, during the course of trying to solve the problem. And when we unpack that further, what we find is a lot of the usual suspects in customer service. It's things like callbacks, um, transfers, asking customers to repeat information, forcing them to channel switch. You know, they go to the website, they can't find what they're looking for, and then they pick up the phone and call, not because they wanted to, but because they felt like they had no other choice. These things um, we call sources of customer effort. It's sort of the work that we put on customers' plates 
um, for them to solve their problems. These are problems, again, that we created because the thing we sold them isn't working the way the customer expects. They reach out to us for help. Then we run them through that grist mill. And no surprise, at the end of that interaction, they leave it more disloyal to us than loyal. Um, the, the punchline is really this, that rather than focusing our energy as companies and as managers and leaders on trying to delight customers and drive their loyalty upward. Instead, what we should be doing is playing great defense, try to mitigate disloyalty by making the service interaction easier than customers expect it to be. And you know that 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 article, the Stop Trying to Delight Your Customers, um, it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek um, and provocative title, but what we're really saying there is that you, of course, want to delight your customers, but the way that you do that in service is not the way you think. The way you do it in customer service is by making the interaction easier than the customer expected it to be. Because, again, we all have this feeling when we pick up the phone and call the company that it's going to be a dreadful interaction. You know, we, we're, it's a, it's a, you know, we know it's going to be generic. We know we're going to be, get transferred all over the place. We, we know right before the, you know, the, the rep says hello, they're probably not going to care about us and our problem. Um, we're just dragging, we're dreading it, or we sort of tense up. And for the customer to leave the interaction feeling like, wow, that was way easier than I thought it was going to be. That's the service experience we really should be shooting for. And so, you know, th- this was really the, the origin of a lot of our work around customer effort, the customer effort score came out of this, all that kind of stuff. But as I said before, there was this really big question that remained unanswered, which is in those situations, and we know increasingly customers are going to self-service first, but we all know self-service is not going to solve all of the customer's problems. We know in the average call center, the phone is still ringing. It hasn't, you know, hasn't stopped ringing. There is always going to be a time and a place where you're going to have to talk to a person on the company side to really get your problem fixed. And in those moments, um, when we know customers are spending all this time, investing all this energy trying to self-serve, and then they have to pick up the phone and call, again, not because they wanted to, but because they felt like they had no other choice. They'd expended every other vehicle and channel and tool at their disposal, and then they resort to the 800 number. In those scenarios, what kind of person should handle that phone call? What kind of person should deal with that phone call so that they mitigate um, uh, the customer effort and mitigate the dis- natural disloyalty that is likely to happen if we handle calls the way that we, most companies typically handle them. Well, just hearing about transfers and calls, I think my blood pressure was yeah. going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You and me both. <laughs> and I think, I mean, the whole like arc of this research journey that you've been on is is super interesting. And I was really fascinated when I read about your breakdown of the seven customer service rep types in the Harvard Business Review article. And I think there were parts of it that really did surprise me. And I I would recommend everybody go read that article because all seven types are pretty fascinating in their own regard. But I would also say that there were a couple that really stood out to me as like, Mm -hmm. huh, that's not what I expected. So can you share a little bit about the surprising things that you learned? Sure. Yeah, sure. So the um, uh, as uh, as you said, Jenny, there there were seven types, and we go into more detail about you know who these people are and, and what they sound like on the phone and, and kind of their their posture, their service posture, or their service approach. But the two that really stood out were the empathizer and the controller. Now, the empathizer, the first one, I'll, I'll sort of double click on. The empathizer stood out because that is the service rep that almost every company, um, almost every chief customer officer, every VP of customer service, every uh, frontline supervisor, every hiring manager in the call center wants to hire, mm-hmm. uh, and it really comes from this view that in this world today, as you know, as as we talked about, you know, just this thought of having to call the eight hundred number and engage with a call center rep is a is a tense thought, right? It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a tension inducing kind of thought. It's we get all torqued up, we get very frustrated at the thought of of having to engage with these folks. That in that scenario, 
the the person you want on the phone is a people person. You want somebody who really understands what the customer's going through, who sees cut things from the customer's perspective. They've they've walked a mile in the customer's shoes. They've they sat on the customer's side of uh, the table. Um, and really, what what defines these folks is how apologetic they are. Um, they're really trying to make the customer just feel better, feel like I understand what you're going through. I understand the pain that you're feeling right now. In uh, the pain, you know that that expression of empathy is really genuine. And so you'll hear this all the time when we talk to service leaders. We show them all seven profiles and they say, I think it was more than 42, 42% of them in our survey said, with my next opening in my call center, I would hire an empathizer. If I had a choice across these seven, I would hire an empathizer. And actually, empathizers of the seven profiles, and we look at the 1,500 service reps in our study, they comprise 32% of the existing call center population if we just extrapolate from our sample. So that's who they so are hiring today. That's who they're hiring, yeah. So they that's who they want, and that's who they're getting, uh, by and large. But the big surprise was this, is that when you look at who are the service reps who create that low effort service experience? It's actually not empathizers. In fact, they don't finish even close to um, the lowest effort service rep. In fact, it was this other profile called the controller. Now, the controller, this is such a surprise because the controller was they the least likely to get a job in a call center. <laughs> they were the, the least desired of the seven profiles. I mean, service leaders and uh, CX leaders wouldn't touch these folks with a barge pole. And the reason is that controllers are, they are opinionated um, confident debaters. These folks are kind of described by their colleagues as know-it-alls. Um, you know, they, they again, they're very opinionated. They're really not afraid of sharing their opinion. Uh, their opinion. You'll talk about what a beautiful blue sky it is today, and they'll argue with you that in fact the sky is actually green, <laughs> scientifically speaking, or something like that. Right? We all know these people, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and. People don't want to hire these folks, but the interesting thing is when you look at the way that they engage with the customer and when you talk to controllers, you suddenly understand why they do so well. And just to hit on that for a moment, they finish where empathizers finished around the 46th percentile of low effort performance, so slightly below average as a group. Controllers finished at on average at the 60th percentile. And the best performing controllers were up there in the 70, 80, 90th percentile. Mm of low effort experience. And the reason is this, and you really understand when you start listening to their calls and talking to these folks, what they'll tell you is this, look, I get it. I understand. I am super empathetic um, to the, uh, you know, with respect to the customer situation. I know that they're talking to me. That the last thing they want to do is to be talking to me. They want to get back to their time with their friends, their family, and get back to their jobs. They have other stuff to be doing. They did not want to be calling the 800 number, and they were dreading this interaction. And so the last thing I'm going to do in that situation is apologize. What the customer wants is for me to fix it. They want me to own the situation. And what they will tell you is, and I, I've had controllers tell me this in interviews, is I grab the customer by the hand. They don't know what they need. They're not experts on these problems. I am. I deal with this stuff all the time. They just need to trust me, and I will drive it through the resolution. And it's really kind of a powerful effect. And, and I've had, I've said to, to um, these controllers, I said, you know, it, it's interesting because the, the profile, when we look at all service reps, the ones who get hired are these empathizer types. And I say, yeah, I know those folks. I'm surrounded by them. But what they don't understand is that customers, again, they don't want an apology. They just want a solution. That's what I understand. I am deeply empathetic, but I'm more understanding of the context that the customer's operating in. You know, as, a, as an aside, it was, it was fun uh, to hear them talk about themselves in sort of social situations. So we, I think we've all got some controller friends, or we've all got at least one, right? Uh, but they're the people who they break the tie on Friday night when we're all talking to our friends and wondering what we should go do. And somebody wants to go see a movie. Somebody wants to go watch the game at a bar. Somebody wants to go bowling. Somebody else wants to go out for a nice meal. 
and they put together a plan that kind of hits all the bases, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to go see this movie at five. It's gotten great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> then we're going to go down the block to this uh, really cool new sports bar. They've got shuffleboard and darts and bowling. So those who want to play bar games can do that. Um, there's a big screen TV. You can watch the game. They have great food. Everyone's going to be happy. And you're kind of thinking on the one hand, you're like kind of annoyed because you somebody else created the uh, the plan. But at the same time, you're kind of relieved. Yeah. That oh, I'm always relieved. I'm just tell me, tell me yeah, where yeah, to be yeah. and when. Exactly. <laughs> totally, yes. Somebody made a decision. That is these people to a T. They are the take control types. But it's so crazy because you talk to service leaders and they're, they will tell you that these folks won't even get past a screening interview. Mm. You know, they come in, they rub people the wrong way. And you can kind of understand why that if you've got a call center or a service organization staffed mainly with empathizers, you know, putting a sharp elbowed opinionated debater on the floor is going to cause some waves, you know. And so it really does raise this question about um, – is it is it them or is it you and is it the organization yeah. you've built, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. But yeah, those are the two types that really stuck out for us. Is is while most people think they want empathizers, what they really want is controllers. I think I mean they totally stood out when I was reading, and it is it's yeah. very surprising. And I it, what it reminded me of in some ways is how if anybody has had any sort of healthcare situation, um, you know, there are times you really want an empathizer. But sometimes yeah. you really need that advocate who is more yeah, like a controller. Right. And I remember I was standing in line. I was in a lot of pain for a prescription. And the person mm -hmm. I was with, who's a relative who I won't name, um, <laughs> was <laughs> uh, she is more of a controller than I am. I'm probably more of the empathizer. So I was yeah, I was yeah. dutifully waiting in line, even though I was, you know, not fit to be there <laughs> and yeah. she just marched right up to the pickup window and I was kind of like what's happening and then all of a sudden we had our prescription we were out the door yep. and I was like yeah. this is amazing <laughs> like all these times when there are times where she's been a little you know intrusive and things like that all of a sudden I was like this is a huge asset right now it's <laughs> like, working yeah, for me yeah, yeah exactly but it you know you do really it, it's so fascinating to read about because of how we think about things kind of intuitively but when we really need that person, that's what we want. We just want somebody to solve yeah. our problem. That's right. And, you know, the, the reality, I think you, you put it really well, these, these folks are um, they're advocates for the customer, but they're kind of – I think their view is um, in, in the way they think about it is sort of, yes, I'm a customer service representative. That's my title. That's my job. But I'm a representative for you, and I'm going to advocate for you inside my company to drive this um, home to resolution and I know the ins and outs. I know the fixes. I deal with this stuff all day long. This is probably the first time you've ever experienced this problem. So, you know, put your faith in me mm -hmm. and I will get us, you know, it may feel a little bit rough around yeah. the edges, <laughs> but, but it, it ultimately delivers what you want yeah. um, at the end of the day, which is to get back to what you're doing. We all before. want a jerk exactly. on our side. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, so, that's his next article. <laughs> right. right. So, hey, the way you title them, that, may, that could be, actually. Exactly. <laughs> you got great titles for a research guy. I love it. <laughs> uh, so two follow-ups. I'm going to ask two questions about, uh, you know, the empathizers and the controllers. The first one yep. is how do you go about finding people that are opinionated debaters when you're, you know, when yeah, you're out in the yeah. job market? And uh, the second one is this. I mean, people are obviously multivariate. Nobody's just one of these mm -hmm. things. They have other attributes. You know, they, whoever, whoever is a uh, controller is also going to have an X, X level of empathy, right? Uh, so yeah, what right. are you looking for? Because there are going to be times when even a controller is going to need to show empathy. So, so that's right. how that's are you right. sort of looking at the sort of multivariate approach? 
or concept? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and you know, we so we sort of talk about this from two dimensions. I think one, the the first place people go is how do I hire more controllers? You know, when I have that next job opening in, you know, um, uh, the the reality, as we all know, in customer service is it's a high turnover um, industry, and uh, and we're going to have job openings whether we like it or not, um, and. Those uh, so there is a real uh, question there about when you have that next job opening. How do you tune your hiring approach um, so that you're looking for controllers rather than penalizing people for being controllers and sort of dinging them right uh, right off the bat? Um, one of the things we found is that um, you know controllers when we test different. Um, uh, we test uh, well, first a couple of things, I guess, to dispel a couple of myths. First, I think people tend to assume when they see how well they do and they hear about the kind of people they are, I think they assume, well, these folks must all be sort of highly educated or demanding a very high salaries. They probably wouldn't want to be call center workers. And what we found is that there's almost no difference on any of those dimensions uh, vis-a-vis any of the other seven profiles. In fact, they are less likely to be college degree holders, They are, which for many companies, they are, they're not hiring college degree uh, workers into the call center. Um, second, they're uh, perfectly willing to accept um, a salary that would be sort of um, on average for the average call center worker. And third, the idea of being a customer service rep doesn't make them run for the hills. They're perfectly open to it. But here's the catch, is that the, the job has got to be positioned in a very specific way. These folks will organ reject and will not apply uh, uh, or want to work in an environment that is highly mechanistic. If, you know, if your call center is like a factory floor where everyone, everything is tightly controlled, you know, everything is scripted, there's a checklist, say the customer's name three times, thank them for being loyal, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. Like Beetlejuice, and, but um, different. <laughs> it, totally. Exactly. Exactly. And if that's the feeling that people have working in your organization where it's just put your headset on, put your head down, work through the queue, do your post-call wrap-up work, say exactly what we say, and then we're going to pull you back into the, you know, for coaching sessions every once in a while and show you some scores that QA gave you on your on your recorded calls um, and and judge you on how closely you stuck to the script and the checklist that is an or, that is an organization that your average controller will run from um, what they want is uh, an organization where they are liberated to exp- to use their own judgment to solve issues the way they think they need to be solved to uh, tailor the resolution experience to the customer. Um, and so, like you said, Adam, in some cases, uh, putting in a little bit of a dose of empathy or, or maybe one of the other profile types or service approaches that we documented, in addition to being a controller. Um, the other thing we found is, you know, quite simply, you know, the language we use to describe call center jobs is that when we test it with controllers, um, is the kind of language that actually makes them cringe. So, you know, if you know if you excel at being on time to work and following a prescribed <laughs> process and this kind of thing, and they don't not that they're late and that they don't follow any process, but that is a mechanistic description of being a call center worker. Um, a company we profiled in the article we think does this really well is uh, Blue Ocean, uh, the call center outsourcing company. Um, they've really finely tuned their language that they use in their job postings. Um, what they told us when we interviewed them is, look, there's a big difference between a job posting versus a job description. A job description is a an actual articulation of what you actually do day in and day out. And let's be honest, that would probably not get a lot of great candidates to apply. What you want to do is make them or get them to want to apply. And so you got to appeal to their the things they're looking for in a job. And what they know is that controllers are looking for opportunities to be creative and problem solving, to own from start to finish customer um, uh, issue resolution, to be able to express their opinions, uh, to 
um, lean in and help identify opportunities for change inside the the organization. Um, they use language. If you look at their job hosting, it's, it's really cool stuff. Like they say, hey, if you excel at planning long distance road trips, or if you <laughs> you know like these kinds of situations, you know that Friday night experience where nobody knows what to do and there's total disagreement, and you like being the person who comes in and negotiates a brokered settlement and you you design a plan. Like this job could be for you. And they found that they've had a lot of success just tuning the language that they use in their job postings. And then the second piece is when those controllers show up, make sure that your hiring managers are screening for controllers, not screening them out, um, and so that they're, they have been trained and coached on what to listen for and not to use their kind of visceral knee-jerk reaction, which is you know, when they see those sharp elbows come out or they feel a little bit of um, you know, prickliness or, or, or um, opinionated kind of personality coming through that they don't think, oh, you wouldn't get along with everyone else, but they actually give that, that person a check mark, not a minus mark in the, um, in the interview um, uh, template. Mm. Now, I guess the other thing, as you said, Adam, though, is that no, you're not going to hire your way to victory here. And the reality is um, there is a lot of bleed between these profiles. They're not mutually exclusive. Every person in our study had trace elements of a variety of profiles. So they weren't all one, right? Even you know your controllers had minors in, in other uh, approaches. So there's a lot of bleed here. Uh, most service reps we found had trace elements of, you know, at least five or six of the seven profile types in them. And the real question here is through through the right training and coaching, um, in the right incentives and the right performance management, how do we sort of up that controller quotient for our average contact center rep who might not be a kind of born controller, but can be taught to do the things that the controller does to really, you know, pardon the expression, but to take control of the service interaction, to own the service interaction. And so when we unpack kind of the way that these controllers deliver service, um, we find that they they use language in a pretty principled and sophisticated way. They um, they tailor that resolution to the customer's personality type, knowing that you know customer A might need a little bit more empathy and customer B just wants the facts mm-hmm. and they just want to get off the phone. And they're really good at this. And so how do we impart those kinds of skills to the average um, uh, person on the floor who, again, might have a little bit of a trace element of being a controller, but they don't major in being a controller and they would need some help coaxing that out of them and being taught the situations in which to apply those skills. And then, and then how do we redesign the performance management system on the back end, the quality assurance process, um, the metrics, uh, so that people get rewarded for exercising their judgment and being a controller and not uh, not penalized for it in the um, uh, in the performance management process. It's all for naught if we go out and tell people to be controllers and then we we ding mm-hmm. them on the back end when they do it. Um, so you got to do both, right? You got to think about how do I hire these folks? How do I attract them to my job? How do I make sure I reward them in the interview process for demonstrating those controller attributes, not not penalize them? And then also, um, how do we impart the controller skills on the rest of the contact center who might not be natural born controllers? Wow, there's so much to think about around this. It's it's <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. I mean, it's really cool though. You start thinking about the different ways that we serve people in the different moments that they need us and mm-hmm. um, and the different skills and, and personalities that are kind of needed for that. So I really encourage everybody to go read this article. We'll put a link to it on our show notes as well as a link to your book. And, uh, you know, it's just been a great conversation. So thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today, Matt. 
Thanks, Juni, and thanks, Adam. It's always a pleasure to, to be with you to share some of our research. So, yeah, I encourage everyone to check that out, uh, check those uh, pieces of work out. There's a lot more information, and this probably felt like drinking from the fire hose a little bit, but <laughs> a lot more information if you're interested in controllers and how to hire controllers and teach people to be controllers and, and just generally about this whole idea of how do we create a low-effort service um, uh, approach. There's a lot more uh, where this came from <laughs> in those articles. And in the book. Well, thanks so much. We'll definitely make sure to link to that. Is there anywhere else if people want to reach out to you or learn more about you that you'd like uh, people to find you? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, folks, I always encourage folks to um, connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm at, at Matthew X Dixon uh, with two T's. Um, and that's D-I-X-O-N. And uh, those are great places to connect with me and to keep the conversation going and uh, answer any uh, questions. I will try to answer any questions that folks might have that they didn't get addressed uh, in the conversation or in the research. That's that's very generous. Thank you for offering that. And uh, thank you for the research you're doing. So thanks for being with us. Have a good day. Okay, great. Thanks for thanks, your time. Matt. Well, I think one of the things that I walked away with was thinking that maybe you and I are like part controller, part empathizer, and it blends together like yin and yang. That's why we're so good at this, Adam. I'm all about the empathy. <laughs> of course, of course. But so, we need that person to solve problems, right? That's that's one of the big takeaways, I think, from his exploration of these different types of customer service agents. Absolutely. You know what helps the problem solvers, the controllers? When people don't create problems in the first place. <laughs> Not just, I'm not saying anything really particularly. I just thought I'd put it out there in sort of a factual statement. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. Well, it's it's a fascinating uh, discussion. So we do encourage you to, you know, really look at that article where he breaks down all of the seven types because each of them have their own values and, of course, their own uh, challenges, let's say. For sure. And one thing I like about it is it's, you know, the whole premise of the article in the conversation is that it's a little counterintuitive. It's not mm -hmm. what customer experience and customer service uh, managers and leaders traditionally look for. So if, if you look at these personality types and these, uh, you know, sort of prototypes, if you will, or, uh, you know, <laughs> archetypes, icons, archetypes, yes. Uh, you know, they really can give you a different lens on how you want to hire and how you want to staff any type of customer facing department. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. So it was a fun discussion to have. So we hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to Crack the Customer Code. We are a proud member of the C-Suite Radio family. If you like C-Suite Radio, then check out C-Suite TV for in-depth interviews with business content for C-Suite leaders and entrepreneurs. It's all on demand. So get insider secrets by going to csuitetv.com. We really appreciate you being here and spending your valuable time with us. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can learn more about me and our customer experience investigation consulting at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Kapork, and you can learn more about me and our customer service workshops and training at customersatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.